This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. Your guest host for this episode will be Matthew Murray, and he's speaking with Amy Wright, who is the new president of the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable for the American Library Association. So lots of great comics talk coming your way. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Hello, and welcome to Circulating Ideas. I'm your guest host, Matthew Murray. I'm a librarian, co-host of Book Club for Masochist, a reader's advisory podcast, and a member at large on the board of the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable of the American Library Association. And with me, I'm talking right now with Amy Wright, who is the first ever president of the Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable. Yes, I am. (laughs) That's a statement I never thought I'd make. Yeah, I'm the first president of Library Comics. So, yep. (laughs) it's nice to be here um i guess i should probably formally introduce myself hey yeah yeah (laughs) um so my name is amy wright um i was a librarian for a long time i'm currently sort of in a bit of a lateral move i'm actually a full-time graduate student right now in a public history program at concordia university in montreal and I'm studying specifically comics, public history, and ways to improve educational outreach with museum and archival collections, sort of building that bridge between comics, uh, public history, and a lot of what we do in the public-facing um, side of libraries and archives. I was a library manager for about 10 years. Um, I guess most notably, I was the manager of school outreach at the New York Public Library for about five years and also worked on developing the collection for My Library NYC, which is a joint school library project at the New York Public Library and one of the largest uh, school library projects in all of North America. Um, what else to say about me? No, it's, it's okay. So how did you end up in libraries? What led you to, to libraries? What were you doing before libraries? My origin story. Um, so I am one of those people who I have a few degrees. Um, when I graduated from I should say, like, I'm also, I'm born and raised in the U.S., um, but I actually moved to Canada when I was 18, and I moved, I grew up in Connecticut. Um, It's not entirely like Gilmore Girls, but there's more to um, the reality of how I grew up in Gilmore Girls than I would probably have admitted at 18. Um, But when I was 18, I moved to Calgary, uh, University of Calgary, because they had a really fantastic archaeology program, and I was super into archaeology. Um, it's funny because a lot of the work I'm doing now with uh, historical objects, material culture, and museums and libraries is very much like historical archaeology. Um, and, but anyway, I just got it in my head that I would move there because they had a really fantastic program, and I just like the idea of, I can go to Canada. Why not? I applied for a student visa, I moved to Canada. So... Um, I ended up staying in Canada a lot longer than I thought I would. Um, I've lived most of actually my adult life now in Canada, and but I've worked in libraries in both Canada and the U.S. So I ended up graduating with um, a double degree in anthropology and English. I switched to cultural anthropology because I found I enjoyed that more than all of the lab work in archaeology. But when you have degrees in English and cultural anthropology, um, your job prospects are, um, yeah. <laughs> so 
I, uh, I started working in nonprofit and I had been very active with um, student volunteer groups when I was at university. I actually ran um, the Safe Walk program at University of Calgary for two years. So it's a volunteer run um, program. We would walk people to their cars uh, late at night on the weekends. And so it was really just a fantastic um, student engagement opportunity, but also a way to promote and talk about um, health and wellness and, you know, make people feel and more empowered, um, you know, in their day-to-day lives um, on campus. And that had been something I just really enjoyed doing. And so I started working in nonprofit. I worked um, for uh, Calgary's Domestic Violence Court. So it's a, actually um, one of the first restorative justice programs in Canada. And I worked there for a few years. I also worked um, at the Calgary Multicultural Center. So this was a nonprofit public service agency working with immigrant and refugee communities. And I really enjoyed all of that work that I had done. Um, Working in nonprofit is, um, you know, can be tedious at the best of times in terms of your paycheck and your job prospects. Um, And all of my jobs were, you know, part-time or, you know, the benefits were year over year. Um, It got it got really frustrating that I really believed in the work I was doing, but, um, you know, depending on the grants we had, uh, we had to transition year over year. Um, so around the same time I started working part-time as a library assistant. Um, I should say I actually worked in a medical library for three years when I was in university. And so I had experience with special collections, but I didn't necessarily I didn't know about all of the community outreach that libraries had been doing. And I started working part-time as a library assistant at the Calgary Public Library. And it made me feel really a great sense of empowerment that like, I couldn't necessarily solve everybody's problems, but if a family came in, I could say to them, we can offer you some job training at the library. Um, We have these great story times and oh my gosh, you can check out all these books. And I just felt like this was a really great way. Like I can help connect people with resources. Um, I was never bored at work. Like every day was different. And yeah, I just, I really enjoyed doing that work. And I was a library assistant for a few years working um, in branch libraries, but also I worked in special collections at the central library doing specialized research for business, um, government documents, um, law, and also social science. And I just found I really enjoyed it. So I decided I'd go to library school, and but I should say my journey to library school wasn't a short path, so if anybody out there is listening and you're worried that maybe your grades aren't great, don't worry. Not all of us have great grades from graduating from college and university the first time, so in 2006, I um, went uh, back to school. I thought I was just going to go back to school for a year. Um, in Canada, we'd call it upgrading. In the U.S., I don't know if there's not quite an equivalent term, but basically my grades were not good enough to get into graduate school the first time. So I went back to school and I took history classes at Concordia in Montreal. Um, My partner at the time was studying at McGill, and so I was living in Montreal anyway. Um, And I ended up just falling in love with the history classes I was taking. Um, And because I already had two previous BAs, Um, they were like, if you stay another year, you can get a third BA. So yes, dear listeners, I have three BAs and I'm now currently working in my second master's. That's uh, funny. I had to go through, go back and do uh, a course as well before I got into my library school program. Yeah. Um, But I only had to take one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My, my grade, my grades needed some improvement. So, um, 
I feel really happy with all of like the volunteer work and stuff I did when I was at University of Calgary, but yeah, my grades were not fantastic. Um, so yeah, if anyone who's listening, like don't allow anyone to tell you that there's one path to librarianship because there are multiple paths. Um, and I think that was the other thing is having worked in the library. By the time I went to library school, I'd been working as a library assistant on and off for about 10 years. And so I worked with people in the library who'd come to librarianship as their first career, as their second career, as their third career. Um, one of my coworkers when I worked at the medical library in Calgary, oh my gosh, he'd been a DJ for like 15 years and um, it was so cool. And like, then he came to librarianship and I was like, hey, this is cool. And so I really enjoyed the people I also worked with and beyond the work that I did. Um, but yeah, so I, after finishing my history degree in Concordia, um, I went to library school. I should say, so while I was at Concordia doing my history degree, that was when I came back to comics. So like a lot of people, I'd read comics growing up. Um, there's always the ubiquitous Archie. I'm not a huge Archie fan. I should put that out there, but, um, Archie was always there and, you know, and I would read whatever, um, comics I could get my hands on. There wasn't like a newsstand or, um, anything in the town I grew up in. So it was more like if I was at the beach with my parents and I would like pick them up at the newsstand. Um, and I, I read a lot and I read very widely. Um, my mom was an early literacy teacher and taught for actually 25 years. And it's really funny to think reflecting back on it now. I mean, I was certainly, you know, I like to consider myself a ghost world teenager, meaning that like I had strong opinions about a lot of things and I wore combat boots. <laughs> this is an accurate depiction of me as a teenager um yep that being said I probably didn't give my mom enough credit for some of the things that like she did growing up that really impacted the kind of reader and librarian I am now and um only when I was older I came across she actually has a textbook um from 1976 that she used in her education degree and it's the Penguin Book of Comics. And she took it for a um, popular culture class in education. And so she was somebody who never put restrictions on my reading. Um, there was a really great public library in the small town I grew up in. And they knew I was a voracious reader. And they never put restrictions on it either. So I read everything. And I think that that's helpful such that when I kind of came back to comics as an adult reader, I didn't think it was weird that I was coming back to comics. It was just sort of like, oh, this is really cool that there's more nonfiction comics. Um, so I was taking um, Concordia actually has um, a center for Holocaust and genocide studies and a very active oral history department. Um, one of the great things with the oral history department is you have people sharing stories from the Holocaust. And there's also a large community of Rwandan genocide survivors um, in Montreal. And so very much a community development project sharing stories and also this idea of recording stories in sort of non-traditional non-text-based historical textbooks way like if we talk about history being for everybody not everybody is going to be writing history textbooks i actually i really hope not everybody is writing history textbooks that seems kind of too no, right <laughs> no right no no <laughs> yeah exactly 100% but it really got me thinking also about like history and the way we tell stories and that there, there's multiple ways of doing that. And um, especially for Holocaust and genocide studies, there's been a lot of attention, obviously, on things like mouse, but not just mouse on other survivor memoirs or even other memoirs written by um, children of Holocaust survivors, too. 
And one of one of my um, supervisors when I was at Concordia before, who's actually now my supervisor again, had turned me on to the work of Michael Rothberg. And he has this idea of what's called traumatic realism. And it's very much built on this idea that, you know, we're, when we're talking about learning from violence, like the idea of like never again, one of the biggest things is mitigating past that sort of us-them divide, especially when we're talking about what we call the post-memory generation, the people who come after. And he talks about like the impact of art and memoir, and he does discuss Mouse, and he sort of tips his hat, and this is like, you know, the mid-2000s, that in graphic storytelling, in this sort of marriage of image and text, there's a way to better approximate the feeling of memory and trauma in a way that better mimics or approximates how it actually feels. And I'd never kind of thought about art in that way before. Um, I'd always, you know, I'd done art as a child, um, actually well into like my late teens and early twenties, but I never thought about that sort of emotional resonance. And the fact that when we talk about an image carrying so much information, it's also carrying these layers of emotional depth well beyond anything text-based because um, you can have juxtaposed information, juxtaposed emotions all relayed in a single panel. And this was like my light bulb moment. So I go into library school with all of this on my brain and um, I write this cataloging piece, which I think is just about cataloging. And it ends up taking me down this other rabbit hole about basically comics advocacy because I looked at cataloging of comics and graphic novels and I was really surprised that a lot of the metadata attached to them didn't really reflect these, for example, educational applications or different um, pedagogical uses or even just reader feedback um, that I was hearing and that I had seen with a lot of comics that were coming out. I think that's something that everybody can agree with is that comics are generally cataloged very poorly. (laughs) I like how I'm like, I'm like very diplomatically and you're like, nope. (laughs) Like, yeah, a hundred percent. And I guess what I didn't know then that I know now is that, you know, there had been people working, you know, for 10, 20, 30 years, like really advocating saying like the cataloging standards for the comics need to change and not just comics, but if we take comics as a bit of a tipping point, like this also illuminates in our profession that our cataloging schema should not be a means to an end. It should be a means for facilitating access to information. And if that needs to change, that needs to change, you know, that we're talking about cataloging oral histories and local content. And of course, like things like zines and, we need to like meet the information in our communities where they are, not just be like, this is what the standards say. <laughs> like, um, yeah, mm-hmm, so exactly. Pretty much the last 10 years have been, it's been a lot of like comics and community outreach and uh, me talking about a lot of metadata. So, yep. <laughs> I have two questions to ask you yeah. leading off of this. First is how valuable do you think, working in a library before you become a librarian is oh my gosh so valuable oh my gosh so valuable like I I think what's really interesting about and I hope you or listeners don't take this the wrong way but like when you work in a library it's not dissimilar from I think working in a retail establishment or a business meaning that so much of the work of the library goes beyond the nine to five work. Um, you know, we're open very late hours. We do a lot of community outreach. 
Um, and we also mean different things to different people who visit us. And so, you know, there's sort of a saying in a lot of business management philosophy that to do a business well, you should really know all aspects of the business. Um, you know, an off-sited example is, you know, whatever product you're doing, like know how that product is made, like know what goes into that, really understand how people come to it. And um, my library program did actually require that we take um, some business classes. Um, I've been very heartened to see there's been a real growth in the past 10 years of nonprofit business management because so much of business philosophy, we're talking about a for-profit consumer capitalist-based thing. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about nonprofit management and public service. Um, that being said, I think like that is a really important takeaway that, you know, to really understand the work of a library, it's so vital to work um, as a library assistant or it's super helpful. I mean, I've worked in lots of different branches, lots of different central library locations and what library lo work looks like from one branch to the next, one community to the next looks very different. And I think having that understanding because whenever you become a librarian, whenever you get your master's in librarianship, something that I don't think is talked about enough is that you will be in a management or leadership position. What I mean is that you will be managing a team or you will be managing a project or you will be somehow presenting on behalf of your organization in some kind of a leadership role, whether it's public speaking or giving input about a project. And to be in that leadership role it's super helpful to really know all that goes into that. And I think, you know, so much of library work um, is based on the library workers. And even the way we talk about librarianship and sort of the preference of the term librarian overlooks the fact that most of our organizations, maybe about 75% of our workforce are library workers. And people come to library work from a variety of backgrounds and skill sets. And you know, it might be a part-time job supplementing what they do. They might have a different master's and they might be working in a specialized research department. So I think to know the breadth of all that goes into it is, I would say, honestly vital for people going into their library degree. Um, if you don't have a chance to work in a library before getting your library degree, I would heavily advise take advantage of internship options so that you can understand that when we talk about library work, um, it really is a spectrum of work and a spectrum of experiences. Um, yeah. So the next question, which is, you know, the one that I'm obviously going to ask you, um, is, uh, in 2017, you were a library journal mover and shaker. Oh God. Oh, wow. oh gosh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yep. Yes, I was. So, so tell us about how that came about. Um, um, basically the team I worked with in New York was the worst group of people ever. I tease, I tease. Um, I didn't realize me yeah, my team had dominated me. Um, so the project that I ran in New York, so this is my library NYC, which is the joint school library partnership program between, um, New York city's three library systems. So most people don't realize there are three library systems in New York. Uh, New York public library covers, the Bronx, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Um, Brooklyn has its own library system, as does Queens. And um, we had, so taking a few steps back, 
Um, under the Obama administration, there was a very large Connect Ed program, like Connected Education program, and there was many aspects to it. Um, but one of it was really trying to improve um, Wi-Fi, school connectivity, and really with an eye towards um, educational innovation and also reforming a lot of education in America. So this is when you saw the Common Core State Standards come about. And uh, New York City was actually an early adopter of the Common Core State Standards. Um, the city, you know, going back to like 2012, 2013. Um, so the program that I ended up running um, was that I had started as a collection development librarian on was one of the largest school library partnerships created as a result of ConnectEd. We also had a um, grant, a very large grant from City, uh, Citibank. It was <laughs> they gave out a lot of grants to celebrate their anniversary, and one of those funded the Citibank. Um, bike share program. And one of those actually funded my library NYC in New York, which most people don't know. Um, That's one thing I would love to see t being taught in library school is how to write a grant. So one of the things, it's funny you mentioned that, I hadn't thought of it, the fact that like I was in nonprofit for almost a decade before I became a librarian. And I'm so glad that I had that experience too, because Coming into my library in NYC, when I came into it, the program had already been around for about a year, year and a half, but we were really trying to figure out what the program would look like in New York. Um, we based it on models that had been developed in other cities. Um, Nashville, for example, has a program called Limitless Libraries. And so we use some other programs in other cities as a benchmark example, but Every city is different. You know, Nashville is a much smaller city. Um, they have a networked uh, school system. Um, it's a smaller library, all of the things. And so it was really useful to be able to think about, okay, what do we have to report back to Citibank in terms of the grant? Um, what do we have? There's a lot of discussion, too, when we talk about um uh, grants and also like nonprofit management, talking about your budgets to what are what we would call unencumbered funds, i.e. what are funds that you can use for different things and what are funds that are earmarked for specific things and do we have specific objectives that we have to report on. Um, and so what was nice, it was a very good grant from Citibank and they really just wanted to see a better connection and partnership between schools and libraries. So one of the most controversial things we did was... Um, we had been printing special library cards for every single student in New York City. And so there are millions of special My Library and My Library cards floating around the five boroughs of New York. We like to joke that we could make an art installation with them. Um, so having these physical library cards was very successful in other cities. Um, it was really problematic in New York. Um, at that point, the New York City uh, Department of Education Office of Library Services um, had also been going through changes. And one of the biggest moves that they were trying to do under Barbara, Strip, uh, Barbara Stripling, who's the director, and then later under Rick Hassenjäger, who's the director, was to try to get all of the school libraries on a common ILS system because they weren't. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so prior to this program coming on board, um, the New York City library systems, it was something like, oh, gosh, one of my colleagues from the DOE Office of Library Services could better answer this. But I think it was at least more than like eight different ILS systems. So the school library systems, there was no network. There was no common platform. And then we talk about three library systems. So we're all having our own um, library catalogs. But so for the purpose of this program, we all had a common collection that we were using. So 
I started out as the collection development librarian and again, no idea that this was going to be such a big thing. Probably would have said no had I known. Uh, just kidding. I probably would have still said yes. Um, but it was how to build a collection that we were getting a lot of feedback from people with the advent of Common Core that like, okay, we have to build a quote Common Core line collection. There was a lot of discussion about Common Core, but one of the things we also found was that a lot of school systems didn't invest in professional development. So the big thing with Common Core is we talk about um, higher and sort of more, more of unified educational standards, like that by the time kids graduate grade 12, ideally state by state, city by city, they're all on a similar page. And so some of the things were um, kids should have more information and more interaction with informational texts, i.e. nonfiction, and that kids should also better learn to interrogate and analyze historical documents and uh, better understand research and inquiry. So all of that is, of course, done in instructional practice. Um, materials are not, quote, inherently curriculum aligned. They become aligned in instruction. And so all this was a huge learning experience for me because you know, we were coming into this like, oh, just build the collections, but just building the collections, again, the collections aren't inherently aligned. They become aligned in terms of their instructional practice and also what is most useful for the educators. So in New York City, of course, um, most people don't know this, there is not a unified curriculum either. <laughs> so um, people are buying curriculum from different educational vendors. Some schools don't have a unified curriculum, some do. Um, some are work, working with uh, Teachers College, um, which is, you know, uh, based out of Columbia. Some people are working with Bank Street College of Education using a model developed there. Some people are buying curriculum from Scholastic, and so they're buying curriculum, but maybe not necessarily having a corresponding professional development instructional practice. So it really ran the gamut. Um, so when I came in, and probably why my team nominated me, besides the fact that they're just like nice individuals, um, was uh, basically to keep the program alive, to make the program sustainable. We really had to change the program. We had to innovate the program and we had to make a lot of tough decisions. Um, so uh, I cut the library cards. <laughs> I was like, this doesn't make financial sense to print all these library cards because the other thing is it's not just the cost to print the cards, it's also the cost to upload that information and data to multiple library ILSs. Um, so three library systems are on different ILSs, the schools run different ILSs, so the kind of lift for that is well beyond being useful, not to mention the sort of staff allocated dollars that when we talk about handing out all these cards, like I would much rather my outreach team be talking about the collection and being saying things like, tell us about what you're teaching for grade seven. Oh, what if we bring in these collections for to sort of complement what you're already doing for grade seven instruction? So we um, we really revise a lot in the program. So we introduce a flexible menu of services for outreach um, because we know all the schools we're dealing with are slightly different. Um, I built, built a full outreach team. So um, the program at New York has seven full-time outreach librarians attached to it. Uh, Brooklyn has three full-time outreach librarians. Um, the Department of Education added more outreach and Queens also added outreach. Theirs is, um, I think, still part-time. But um, one of the other things and that we got a lot of attention for, and we actually, the year that I won, Library Journal Mover and Shaker. We also won the Urban Library um, Urban Library Council Award for Innovation and Collections. 
And this was, I had started the collection, but then my colleague, Emily Drew, who's a selector at um, New York Public Library in Brooklyn for book ops, had just grown the collection exponentially and added so much more. We diversified the collection. So most you know, notably is that we added a lot of comics to the collection. We added a lot of comics, um, some popular reading, and we created, um, we call them teacher sets, so collection of materials for the classroom, in a way like we would, if you will, curate a really good library, book display or book list, like mix of fiction and nonfiction, different informational texts, um, books from like DK and National Geographic mixed in with historical fiction, historical nonfiction, and really making sure we were hitting as many bases as possible of when we're building these competencies for students in terms of different formats to make sure that they actually saw a different format. So most notably, we had an existing civil rights set, and this was one of the first sets that I was like, I'm going to add March to this set. Like, it just makes sense to add March to this set. And March was actually added. New York City does have a recommended curriculum for social studies. It's not necessarily, you know, schools can decide to purchase whatever books they want, but it's sort of a recommended curriculum and recommended instructional standards. And so March was added to social studies curriculum. And that's March by John Lewis, Andrew Aiden and Nate Powell. Yep, exactly. So um, and this is, yeah, March book one. And I mean, at the time too, you know, March is getting a lot of attention. Um, but this was also for me uh, as sort of a librarian slash education um, adjacent librarian too, this was another light bulb moment. So as we added March to the civil rights set, we were getting really good feedback from a lot of school librarians. We we're getting feedback from students, but we were also getting some feedback from educators saying, well, we can't teach that. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, it's a comic. And I was like, pretty sure this is in your social studies curriculum. And they're like, no, 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 we can't teach that because common core. And so um, me being me, I read the common core state standards, um, including all the appendix. And um, in uh, the sort of standards and recommended for reading history and building competencies for grades six to 12, it's students should have a lot of day-to-day -day interaction with different formats, including graphic novels. And so I started including screenshots and presentations of the New York City Social Studies curriculum and the Common Core State Standards. And I'd be like, oh, hey, like, I'm not an educator, but like, I read your standards and like, I'm pretty sure it's okay. Um, and uh, so a lot of that work, um, I think what was really heartening to see was the collection started to circulate and um, people really started to report just great success about the outreach because we really tried to be like, okay, we want to create outreach that's really useful and empowering and working with the school librarians and the educators and the schools we're working in. Um, we like to say like we're stronger to, together, you know, um, because we there's research and, you know, yet we still cut school libraries and stuff, but, you know, every educational bit of research out there says, you know, if kids have interactions with books and reading at home, if they have them in the classroom libraries and school libraries and after school at a public library, like kids will grow up to be better readers, more confident readers. They will have that confidence to interrogate and ask questions about information and not sort of delineate themselves as like, I'm a good reader, a bad reader. Like we're all readers. So um, yeah, I guess because of some of that stuff, I became a mover and shaker. So 
It's interesting that you're you're saying that about the teachers being kind of unwilling to to teach the comics, um, because that really reflects um, something I've talked about with my uh, colleague Amanda Malili, whose last name I think I've just pronounced wrong, but she is the head of um, the Teacher Development and Resource Library at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Yeah, and so this is a library aimed at. Yep. people becoming teachers and one of the things that's really great about this is that she has a massive graphic novel collection yeah. there in part so that people can learn about comics and learn about how to teach with comics yep. because if you're not familiar with comics then teaching with them can be very difficult you're just like oh how do i what do i look at how do i use this um, because it is a different media than than you know, prose or films or whatever else that people may be more experienced with using as like a form of entertainment and also teaching. Oh, hundred percent. And I think what, and it sounds like, you know, what Amanda's library and, and what her directive is, like we've seen that in a lot of other education libraries. So I think what is sort of fascinating is to have this juxtaposition of we have this sort of call in terms of instructional practice um, to have you know, experience with graphic novels in education, like as you're getting your ed degree. And yet in instructional practice, what I've seen is it's still an issue of debate. And I think we really see that in librarianship too. And I think a lot of it has to do with whether or not people are conscious, this sort of lingering moral stigma around comics and this sort of notion of comics being quote, lowbrow. And I mean, more than anything is I'm just like, this whole lowbrow highbrow is pretty freaking classist and elitist. And like, I just want to drop that from any discussion ever. And if people use that, I'm just decided that going forward, I'm just going to be like, wow, that's pretty elitist. <laughs> um, because it, it, it nobody wins when we talk about art, when we talk about literature, and when we talk about what moves people, you know. And um, one of the great light bulbs for us was we so were always working with the Office of Library Services. and then. Actually, through comics, I started working with the Department of Social Studies and because they had done work um, with John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and Nate Powell around March, and they were the ones who really advocated for it to be added to the curriculum. And working with them gave me like this, oh, I was like, wait a minute, social studies teachers know how to decode and teach political cartoons. Like going back to like the Scott McCloud thing. And I was like, everybody must know, like Scott McCloud, he talks about the Bayou Tapestry and he talks about this great lineage of comics. I'm like, everybody must know this. No, 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 not really. So um, it became something that I would do in almost every presentation, like just reminding people when we talk about comics and graphic novels, we're really talking about visual storytelling and to try to draw the connections between we're talking about graphic design. I mean, we want kids to graduate grade 12 high school with the ability to do PowerPoint presentations. I mean, this, these are all interlinked in terms of how do we create stories and information based on visuals and like, these are all the same skills, um, but they're not necessarily being talked about uniformly in harmony. So let's let's move on a little. How did you first get involved with the graphic novel and comics roundtable? Or I guess it wasn't even called that at that point. No, it was just a glimmer in Tina Coleman's eye, I think, at that point. Hey? Yeah. 
So because I was a New York-based librarian for a long time, um, I was aware that um, in New York Comic Con, like a few of the shows, you could qualify for a professional badge. So you could go for free for the Thursday, which was pro day at New York and still is. That's if you work in a library? Yep. So if you if you qualify as, uh, if you work in a library, if you work in education, you can actually apply through the New York Comic Con site, you know, a few six to 12 months in advance. And you can qualify for this badge. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can go to Comic-Con for free? Like, this was amazing. This was like, what? Um, So I started going, I think it was like 2012. Maybe it was my first, 2012? Yeah, 2012 was the first time I went. And what was really nice too is like, you can go for free for the Thursday or as a pro, you can actually qualify for a discounted four-day badge. And I I don't know. I was just like, this is amazing. I'm so excited. <laughs> There's so much cool stuff that people are talking about. And um, yeah, so I, you know, was going to New York Comic Con every year. I presented a few times. Um, I had done actually a presentation uh, with two colleagues um, on uh, comics in the Common Core in 2013. This has become like one of the most power- like popular presentations I've ever done. It's like it's been downloaded like 50,000 times because I think there were so many questions. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was aware and I was like, knew that this was going on, but I honestly had no idea that it was such a bigger thing in terms of professional development going on in different cities. And also like, I didn't know that it was going on in Canada too. Um, so fast forward to, we're doing my library NYC. Um, we're trying to really expand our outreach in terms of our partners. So we're trying to get aware of with the teachers and librarians that we're working with, like what conferences are they going to, what's on their radar. And that's when we found out like, wow, AASL. So, you know, the American Association of School Librarians, um, they have their own standards for learning, uh, 21st century um, standards for learning that are a crosswalk between that and the Common Core. And there's a lot of recommendations for comics. Um, a lot of educators we work with are going to NCTE, so the National Council for Teachers of English, um, the National Council for Social Studies Teachers, and light bulb. As we start to expand this space, people are like, you know, other cons are doing this too. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I had no idea. So um, pretty much, I think like, honestly, Matthew, I think my origin story, especially with the roundtable, really, it, it dates back to you meeting you in Seattle. No, it's, I'm serious. Cause I hadn't, I had not met Tina before that. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is at Emerald city comic con. Emerald city comic con. So what March, 2017, I find out again, you flashed to me because it's also a read pop show that they offer these pro badges at Emerald city comic con in Seattle. And I was like, wow, that would be cool. Cause we'd been doing a lot of presentations in around the New York area about comics and civic engagement. I'm talking about March Ms. Marvel. And I was like, wow, this would be really cool. And I had this kind of in the back of my head that it would be cool just to find out what other libraries were doing. So um, yeah, I go to Emerald city in March, 2017. Um, I meet you. I meet a bunch of other librarians. Um, I find out about the pop-up library and I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And I'm not even sure I had known about TCAF um, from friends in Canada, but it wasn't really on my radar that TCAF had a librarian educator day. I wonder even if you had told me, Matthew, like, I don't even know how. So that's the Toronto Comics Art Festival for anyone that's not familiar with this. Um, And I think also I'll mention here that San Diego Comic-Con had a librarian and educator day as well. Um, 
that had been going on for a few years at that point. But the Seattle, the Emerald City Comic Con, what was really, I thought was really interesting about that was the pop-up library space that we had. Um, And so this was a collaborative space between a number of different library systems in the, you know, the Seattle, Washington state area uh, who had come together to have this space on the show floor uh, to work with ReadPop to get the space to have books where people can look at and like I think you could maybe even borrow them if you had a library card in the from the right system yeah. I don't know and sign up for a library card find out about the digital comics that were available and honestly just take a break and I think they did some like story times and stuff as well and we also ran some professional programming but like that that wasn't new but the the pop-up library was a really fun and interesting thing and I think kind of what brought you to that convention oh yeah 100 percent. and I was just like this is because we had been doing through my library at NYC we had actually purchased mobile shelving and we were doing a lot more community events um, with our mobile shelving, essentially our mobile library. We had done events at summer reading kickoffs. And so we were really trying to look at, you know, expanding. And I mean, I'll give another shout out. Like my, the team I worked with in New York were really, they are really exceptional human beings. And one of the best things was we all had different areas of interest and as we were working on things, we were really like, okay, that's just, there's no blueprint for this. Like we're working on this program that was grant funded. That wasn't even supposed to be sustainable. Nobody thought we were going to succeed. Like we're in uncharted territories here. So let's just brainstorm together about opportunities and um, yeah, expanding into like, and thinking about the educational conferences and the comic conferences. So that's when I started to find out about, you know, Emerald city had, um, the pro badges and was doing things like the pop-up library. I met you and you told me about San Diego and I was like, what? This is amazing. Um, and then, you know, that year as well, like, uh, May, 2017, I presented that and went to the Toronto comic arts festival library and educator day for the first time. And I met Tina Coleman and yeah, my life kind of changed from like that period, like 2017. And I had not been an active member of ALA. I had done stuff in the past, Um, actually the fall of 2016, I presented at the ELSA symposium about our school outreach and our uh, menu of services. Um, I had presented at the Ontario Library Association early 2017 also about um, our school outreach and you know sort of um sort of the some of the successes and challenges that we found with my library and my C so and going back I'd done a lot of stuff with education and uh, collection development but I had never done a huge amount of stuff within the comics professional development space and just to find out there was so much going on was amazing I was just like I have found my people <laughs> so um yeah, it just sort of took off from there. So yeah, 2017, I went to um, Emerald City. I went to um, TCAF, so the Toronto Comic Arts Festival. Um, I went to ALA Annual that year. And I mean, ALA Annual you know, has been doing so much comic stuff for so long. But I think there was finally like, enough of us. And, you know, the industry had changed. And I think a lot of the pieces just came together. And then as we like to joke about Tina you know, she's very much the Nick Fury of everything and, you know, um, put all of us in touch with each other and really helped to facilitate everything happening. And because when I bumped into Tina, when I met her at the Toronto Comic Arts Festival Library and Educator Day at that point, having seen the pop-up library at Emerald City and then seeing the Library and Educator Day at TCAF, 
I was like, I want to do this in New York. And Tina was like, okay, I will help you make this happen. And, um, you know, myself and colleagues at New York, including uh, my colleague, Emily Drew, who now runs the event in New York, you know, Tina worked with us and, you know, sat down and, you know, there was also this great community. I mean, you shared so much information. Erwin shared so much information from San Diego. Um, Claire shared so much information too from Emerald City. And it just was like this great community that I didn't even realize was already there. And just, yeah, it just sort of took off from there. And then, um, so we had done the event in New York um, in October uh, 2017. And I didn't realize that it was going to be as big as it was. Um, but it's pretty big and I left New York Public Library and I was like, I still want to kind of be active in this space. And Tina was like, well, <laughs> if you want to do some stuff for C2E2 and, um, that's in Chicago yeah, in Chicago. And so I had helped organize the panels in C2E2 in March, 2018, and just sort of all around that as we started to do more, and I think uh, as all of us who were involved in these spaces started to just be in touch with each other, I know that this is something that, you know, a bunch of people had had an idea about for a long time because the member interest group already at that point for graphic novels and comics, you know, had been around for about a decade. Um, we had a lot of membership, but just I don't think we necessarily had, um, you know, a critical mass. And it was sort of all of a sudden things, it felt like the stars aligned, you know? And um, uh, I think, you know, given the positions I had at New York, um, it was definitely useful to have sort of, you know, ideas and knowledge about like, you know, how do we build something? Um, and it, other other people brought the, that experience and knowledge to the table too. And just I think to have a lot of us there who, you know, had those skills and those interests and that passion to actually see something new start. And I don't know if you realize, like, I didn't really realize too exactly how new and different it was what we were doing. Um, I knew that ALA didn't want to really add new roundtables, but I didn't really understand why. And it just was like, oh, this makes sense. Like, there's so many of us doing all this stuff all around North America, not to mention, like, internationally and, like, you're such a grand soul of support, and, like comics are so popular. And I'm just like, it just yeah, makes sense, right? You know, and I didn't really realize it, I think, until when uh, council um, was voting on everything last year during annual and Jim Neal, who was the president at that time, Lloyd, I was just about to take over, had spoken about the roundtable. And he was like, you know, this was a really great submission, the application that they submitted, all the documentation you know, they've thought about things, you know, they have this great community spread all across North America. Um, and just, you know, him with his background as a school librarian was just talking about like, this is something that cuts across so many different aspects of our profession. I think that's one of the best things too, is that like, yes, we totally need more academic librarians, Matthew. But what has been really cool is to be, to see that like, through comics as a format just like comics are a collaborative format like i feel like the roundtable is this great collaborative platform for our profession and for us to talk about something that we all are passionate about and believe in but also allow us to talk about aspects in our profession that we would like to see expanded and like to talk about some opportunities um you know and it's been pretty awesome <laughs> like it's been weird like I, nothing that's ha like everything has surprised me of the past few years so yep 
Yeah, it's it's been really great. And I will add one small thing, which is that Tina Coleman, who you mentioned, is a staff liaison and member specialist for the American Library Association. So she works for ALA um, and was really was like the organizer, I believe, for having like all the graphic novel stuff at the annual conferences originally. Yeah. So and I mean, I think the other thing was like to just have such a breadth of knowledge. Like, so we've like Robin and Eva and Mike and so many people I'm thinking like Deb and Heidi and Bridget and like to have this also support and groundswell of knowledge, like going back like 10, five, 10, 15 years of people who've been like really working away to try to get legitimacy and attention and everything. And then to know that we have this foundation and that we have so many new people come to the table too. Um, you know, one of the things we've heard from a lot of people with the roundtable is that they've rejoined the American Library Association because of the roundtable. Um, it's given them a different way to see themselves in our profession. And I know that it certainly gave me a different way to see myself as a librarian and in a way that, I mean, I guess the bottom line for me is like why I came back to comics is I had was able to see so many different applications. You know, this was something I was seeing in history and, you know, and community outreach, especially with Holocaust and genocide survivor communities. And then to work as a librarian and being in like a reader's advisory capacity and seeing that some of our summer reading programs still tell kids that they can't read a comic or if they read a comic, they need to read a quote, a real book next. And I mean, I became a librarian because I wanted to help people. Like, I, I didn't want to put restrictions, and I don't want to put restrictions on what people read. Like, my job is to help them, not to judge them, not to police them. And I think that's one of the benefits of the roundtable and doing this kind of professional development is not – our job is not to, like, reinvent the wheel. It's also to really signal boost and support all of the great work people are already doing and just give them this sort of official organizational legitimacy to be like, yeah, this is real. Like it's been real for a long time, but like it's real, it's real. So um, it's been really heartening. It's, um, it's, it's given me a lot of hope. Like, just like, it's funny that a book like March in some ways changed my professional life and it sort of sparked a lot of this work. I'm like, it's interesting that like the round table has also given me sort of a reinvigorated professional drive to like see what we can do to continue to mentor and also bring more people to the profession and support people who are already in the profession. So great. Last question here, I think, is uh tell tell us more about the graphic novel and comics roundtable and what what it's doing right now. So even though the graphic novel and comics roundtable is less than a year old, we've been doing an awful lot. Um, so we have uh, eight committees, and our committees are awards and reading lists, because we've heard from a lot of people that they'd like to see an increase in graphic novel awards and really attention for reading lists as collection development tools and as advocacy means. We have a communications committee, uh, because we are doing so much work all across North America and really trying to signal boost. There's enough communication stuff. We have our own committee. Uh, we also have conference. Um, so our conference committee is responsible for ALA annual and ALA midwinter and maybe forecasting ahead, maybe to look at us appearing at other library conferences like PLA, ASL, um, ALS, maybe ALSA, we'll see. Room to grow. 
but then we also have our convention planning team. So um, that's um, I've been co-chairing that uh, with Natalie Dijon from the Chicago area for the past little bit. And so that is coordinating and helping to support and in some cases actually directly organizing um, C2E2, um, Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, uh, Seattle, um, San Diego Comic Con, uh, New York Comic Con, working to support things like Toronto Comic Arts Festival, Small Press Expo in Washington, and many others. Uh, we have membership and outreach um, with uh, Carla, who is our chair, um, and uh, basically really trying to, the big thing for year one for us is to continue to work on membership, uh, grow our membership and work on membership engagement and getting more people aware of the roundtable and also keeping the members we have and making sure we're hearing from them. We have metadata and cataloging. A really important one, as we established already. Super important. And one of the really exciting things about that is we've had a lot of people already come to the table from um, organizations like even Library of Congress to be like, we want to know what's going on and like, how can we help? Um, because we know so much of when we talk about outreach in the library, we talk so much about physical outreach, but also that metadata works as like the invisible network to really support and provide access to our collections and organize our collections for all of our patrons. And yep, to not look at that. Yep. Uh, Resources and Toolkits Committee, um, chaired by Matthew No, who is also our representative from the graphic medicine community. Um, through Resources and Toolkits, they're looking to aggregate a lot of resources that are already out there. Uh, signal boost for other things, but also create new resources. Um, they sponsored already, I think it's been like eight webinars they've already done this past year. It's been crazy. We did webinars for Ben Books Week, webinars for Will Eisner Week, and also webinars for School Library Month in the month of April. And finally, we have our Will Eisner Graphic Novel Grants for Libraries Committee, um, chaired by Mary Ellef, also from the Chicago area. So the Will Eisner Graphic Novel Grants for Libraries has been around for a few years. Um, this past year, though, we actually expanded the grants. So there's three grants. There's one grant offered for growth. So if you already have an existing graphic novel grant and you want a graphic novel collection, and you want to grow it. Then we also have our innovation grant. And so if you have a new idea that you want to start um, or just a different part of your collection that you want to grow, and I should say the, the Will Eisner graphic novel grants uh, for libraries are some of the largest grants available in librarianship. It includes money for uh, the winning library system to send a representative to ALA annual conference. It's also money to purchase collections, and it's also a donation of title for your collection. So the total value, I think we put it around $6,000 US. So yeah, that's just like some of the small things. All of us are going to San Diego. A bunch of us are going to San Diego. And, you know, um, so going to San Diego, uh, I know we have representatives from the Graphic Novel Roundtable that will be there at Dragon Con. For a lot of the cons that we don't have a formally established presence at yet, um, what we want to do is if we have members that are going to the cons, support them in any way possible, whether through handing out membership brochures or talking to people. We've been just talking about like, hey, there's a roundtable that does this work now. Um, we're also hard at work for uh, New York Comic Con. Um, some of us will be involved with Small Press Expo. So this is one of the largest independent um, comics festivals in the U.S. that takes place in Washington. And yeah, it's just, um, it's been a lot. So yeah, <laughs> um, I think it's it's been super exciting and just like super overwhelming. And um, 
So if you'd like to volunteer, please volunteer. You can volunteer for any one of our eight committees, or you could even say, I'm not even really sure what committee I want to volunteer for, but just tell us a little bit about yourself and we can see if there's a committee spot that works for you. I think the other thing to keep in mind is just like comics are for everyone, we want this roundtable to also be for everyone. So if you're just looking for an ad hoc volunteer opportunity, we are always looking for people to help assist with the conventions, um, with conferences. So even if you are not able to fill out the volunteer form or you're not sure if you have the time to do that, um, we're always putting out the call for volunteers for ad hoc things. So just, you know, follow us on social media. We are at libcomics, so L-I-B, C-O-M-I-X on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we also have a Facebook group for the ALA Graphic Novel and Comics Roundtable. And we have um, our website that's up and running um, based off of the American Library Association as we are an official roundtable. So we have lots more information in our volunteer form on is on our Get Involved page on our website online. One thing I will say is that to officially join any of these committees, you do have to be an ALA and a uh, graphic novel and comics roundtable member. Yes. So yes, for people who are like maybe library adjacent, or maybe you're not an ALA member, there are still other ways to volunteer. So those the ad hoc opportunities. Um, we have a lot of people from education or people that are from comic book publishers, comic book stores. So um, yes, to be on the committees, you do have to be an ALA and roundtable member, but there are other ways to volunteer as well. Great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and talking with me today. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? So um, about 10 years ago, I uh, spent a summer binging Portlandia. So um, at that point, I decided it'd be a real good idea to get the handle Librarylandia on Twitter. And so that's where you can find me at Librarylandia. Perfect. And people can just tweet at you to ask you to do more things, right? Oh, gosh. No, no. Please don't. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I may, I may not have mentioned I am actually trying to write a history graduate thesis right now, so um, which which is going okay. But yeah, I'm. Uh... <laughs> so thanks again, Amy, for being on the show, and uh, I look forward to working with you again in the future. Thanks so much, Matthew. Circulating Ideas is produced by me, Steve Thomas, in the suburbs of Atlanta. Thanks to Matthew Murray for filling in with this great interview. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work, Matthew's place of work, or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash circideas. And you can follow the show on Twitter at circideas or like the show's Facebook page for library land links. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.